1891, a British seaman survived an amazing experience. Don't know if you've heard of it. Just two months earlier, in December 1890, James Bartley had set sail on his first week of a new job, whale hunting. He left from a little port around a little corner of the world called Auckland and set out towards the Falkland Islands. Uh, the boat was going along, and in the distance they spotted a sperm whale, a large one. Uh, two boats, long boats, were, were launched off the large ship, and one of them succeeded in harpooning the whale. The rope went out, went out, went out. So it kind of went to its full length of 800 metres. The rope kind of went tight. And then it just went slack. There's kind of eerie silence at 11pm at night. As these men sat in these longboats, wondering where this fish was. Until boom! The whale surfaced, hit the boat, and smashed one of the longboats everywhere. All the sailors were in the water. That night, all but two of the sailors got back to shore. Eventually, the whale kind of died. The harpoon had got it. Uh, They brought it up to the side of the ship, brought it on the ship, and the crew set to work that night at dissecting the carcass of this huge animal. The next morning, they kind of hoisted the stomach onto deck, and as they kind of were looking at the stomach, they noticed it moved. They sliced open the stomach, and there was an unconscious James Bartley, alive. They doused him with water, and the guy was still alive. In 1896, the New York Times reported that for two weeks, Bartley was a raving lunatic. That's what happens when you spend 15 hours in the belly of a a whale. But by the end of the third week, he'd fully recovered. Bartley recalled being swallowed by a great darkness, then slipping along a smooth passage until he came to a larger space. He felt flimsy and slimy stuff around him and realised he'd been swallowed by the whale. He couldn't breathe, but the heat kind of sucked the energy out of him. So he could breathe. But eventually he passed out. James Bartley was inside the belly of a fish 15 hours. And it showed. When he came out, all his body hair was gone. The acidic stomach had kind of bleached his skin nearly white. It was a month before the guy was healthy again. He spent a a month in hospital. James Bartley, 1870 to 1909, was a modern day Jonah. The only problem is... That story is probably not true. <laughs> um, there's a bit of evidence, and people have looked into it, it's been passed around. Um, but there was this boat called the Star of the East. That's true. It had a, it had a captain called J.B. Killam. Um, but he says there was no James Bartley on his crew. The London Hospital, the people have gone through the records and kind of looked into this stuff, and they found no one in the 1890s whose records showed the symptoms of that of James Bartley. Lloyds of London. Uh, reported there was a ship called the Star of the Sea, Star of the East, that left Auckland in December 1890. But on the crew list, no James Bartley exists. And to cap it all off, in 1906, the wife of the captain, J.B. Killam, uh, the captain of this, this boat, wrote that she'd been, she'd been with her husband all the years he commanded the ship, and that no one had been lost overboard during that time. Quote, unquote, this sailor has told a great sea yarn. Now that's the question for us as we come to the Bible this week. And hear this story of a man being swallowed by a fish. It's pretty unlikely, isn't it? 
Is the whole book of Jonah a big yarn? Has this really gone on? Why is it here? Could it have happened? I mean, it doesn't have to wipe out the whole book if it didn't happen, does it? There's only two verses that talk about a fish. It doesn't even say a whale, it just says a fish. Well, we'll see today, I think, something more about the God of the universe. At the end of chapter 1, Jonah is forced to admit his disobedience. God told him to go to Nineveh, to the east. But he runs to a boat, jumps in a boat, heads to Tarshish, all the way to the west. He's running from God. He's disobeyed God. He's there. There's a massive storm that God has sent. The sailors are going, what's going on? We're going to die. They go to throw everything overboard. Finally, Jonah speaks up and says, it's me, it's my fault. Throw me over. Jonah is forced to admit his disobedience. He had been the cause for the other sailors' conversion, though. I don't know if you saw that last week. The other sailors, when he jumped over and the seas went calm, sacrificed to God and trusted in the God of the universe. But only this week, in the belly of a great fish, do we see Jonah sacrifice to God. Jonah here is thrown into the sea as God's judgment is put on him. Jonah's sin, disobeying God, running from him, that is what saw him where he is. But the issue that began the whole thing is still unresolved. Nineveh, the place Jonah was supposed to go and preach the word to, still exists. Remember this wild brute of a city whose godliness, their reputation for hanging the heads of their enemies off chains around their necks to say we are gruesome, the Assyrians, this is who these people were, was recognised universally across the ancient Near East. Its sin of this city is still a stench to the nostrils of the God who made the world. The God who made everything. And we're tempted to think at this moment, as his prophet runs, as he goes thrown overboard and sinks to the depths of the ocean, has God lost control? Is this God really the God of everything? But he hasn't. See, the God we meet on the pages of Jonah is the God who is in control. God has plans for Nineveh. How could he say? I mean, he could have said, All right, Jonah, I've given you a go. Uh, You've blown it. I'm going to give that job of, of preaching for Nineveh to someone else. He could have done that. But God still has plans for Jonah. Things to teach him. Things to bring about his purpose. And things to teach us through him. So, according to the story, God appoints a great fish. Now, as you can imagine, throughout history, many scholars have had great problems with a great fish. Um, They kind of go, how can a fish swallow a person? As we scour the history books, we come across old wives' tales that have pretty much been proved not true. Um, They did find a a 15... I can't remember the size, but a large octopus, a large squid, inside the belly of a whale. So, you know... It's physiologically possible. Um, you know, it's not like it was a worm that ate Jonah. Like, that would be a little bit even more unbelievable. It's like physiologically that's a big worm. Um, I thought that was funnier than you did. Anyway. <laughs> so here is this fish. Um, but the thing is, if God can make a storm raise up, and can calm a storm with his word. If he, can, if he can make a vine grow that we're going to see a little bit later. And then send a worm to eat the vine so that the vine would shrink. 
Maybe he can do this. Maybe the God that we're dealing with is actually able to appoint a fish to swallow a man. I don't think it's that big a reach to kind of go, excuse the pun at the end, a reach, anyway, to go that this fish could take this man. See, the God we meet in Jonah is the God of the land of sea, the land and sea. He's the God of creation. He's the God who made the world. I want us to just focus for a minute. This is the God who is in control of everything. And he uses them all, the sea, the wind, the waves, the fish, the sailors, the lots, the worm, the vine, to achieve his purpose. But when I watch the TV, I see all sorts of claims about the weather. Mother Nature is in control, not God. Mother Nature is kind of doing something here. We experience an earthquake. Mother Nature has been unkind to us. We have tornadoes. Mother Nature has unleashed her fury. We have blue skies and warm, sunny days. And we say Mother Nature has dealt us a wonderful day. Society likes to shift the focus of the universe away from God. Away from anyone to whom they'd be accountable to. And to some kind of fairy godmother figure. Now that's fine if it really is Mother Nature. But the claim of the Bible... The claim of the history books of a real people that exist at a real time is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is in control of all things. And if you look through the archaeological evidence, if you look through the cities the Bible talks about, if you see the claims Jesus makes, then there's fair bit of evidence to be said that this stuff actually happened. That these events went on and this possibly could be the God of the universe. So as an expression of God's loving nature, his, his grace, His undeserved gift, for the good of both Nineveh, who would die, and Jonah, God appoints this great fish. Now, we don't know what type of fish it is. There's no point speculating. It doesn't say, you know. But, then we see this fish take Jonah. Jonah spends some time inside this bizarre submarine. Then he writes his poem. Now, Unlike the animation, I can't really imagine Jonah sitting on a crate inside the whale, uh, scratching his head and going, there's a fair bit of space in here. You know, I could hang a painting up and look at that fish over there. I wouldn't mind something like that. There's some plankton. I like plankton. Um, you can't really, I don't think that's the picture. The picture is that he's, he's taken by this fish and in a moment of kind of desperation, in a moment of kind of, as he's stuck there, cries out, The point of this whole passage is this prayer. Jonah is hurled into the sea. You can imagine it. Piercingly cold. Pushed around by these waves. Terrifyingly strong rips. And it kind of wakes him up. Snaps him out of his kind of delusion from running from God. As he kind of starts sinking, he's like the prodigal son in the pig's pit wallowing in the mud, going, what have I done? Running from the God of the universe. It's like he's come to his senses, finally. And he prays a prayer. A prayer of thankfulness as the fish gets in. And I think at that point, we've got to ask ourselves, what will it take for us to be thankful to God? Sometimes we just go on with life 
And it's not until we get shaken up and we realise really how much we've been given that we come to God and thank Him. Jonah here in this prayer thanks the God of the universe for saving him, but man, what depths he has to go to first. How thankful have I been, have you been, for the God who's given you everything? The God who's made the world, who's made the sun, who's made the sea, who's made the view. If anything, this little part is a reminder to take God seriously and to recognise Him as the maker of all things and thank Him. So Jonah, as he's sinking, does what any person would do facing death. Cries out to God. What we have here is kind of a psalm. It's kind of an an ode to God, a prayer. From verse 2 to verse 9. The first verse is kind of the whole experience in a nutshell. He's, He's literally delivered from death. Delivered from Sheol is the kind of Hebrew word, which was the place of the dead. It's like the waiting room for the dead. And God delivers him from this waiting room. Then, in two verses, he describes in repetition what happened to him. Verse 3 and verse 4. You hurled me into the very deep, into the very hearts of the sea. But hang on a second. Who hurled Jonah into the sea? Wasn't it the sailors? But Jonah gets it right, you see. He sees, as the Bible writers do, that the first cause behind everything is the God of the universe. That God is behind all things. Jonah rightly attributes what went on to God, even though the sailors threw him overboard. Don't for a minute think God is in control. So Jonah sees it right. He sees God as the one who sent the storm. God is the one who held him in. God is the one who appointed the fish. The reality is God did this. Now Jonah's not bitter about it. He's not kind of angry. He knew he deserved it. He, he knew God sent the storm. He knew he must pay for his sin. So in chapter 2, Jonah's arrogance that we saw in the first chapter, his display of bravado, he's like, look at me, I can run from God, I can get away and sit happily on myself and sleep during the storm below the boat. That's kind of all evaporated. He's been snapped out of his, his sleep. He's been woken up. Pick me up, throw me into the sea. It's a different Jonah now. He now sees how terrible his situation is. Verse 3, And the current swirled about me, all your waves and breakers swept over me. You can kind of imagine him, he's using poetic language, on the surface of the water like a rag doll, in a dog's mouth being torn apart, ripped this way and that in the middle of the ocean, being pushed and pulled. Then a fearful thought comes to Jonah's mind. Verse 4, I have been banished. From your sight. Death is one thing. But being separated from the God of goodness, the God who made the world, that's an even scarier proposition altogether. He knew death wasn't the end of his life, that he was facing an eternity of being away from anything that was good, from being away from the God of the universe. I will be banished from your sight like Adam from the garden. 
or like Cain from the Lord's presence, or like Ishmael from the tents of Abraham. He's remembering those who reject God get pushed away forever. Have you thought about where your eternity sits? Is death the end? Or is there more? For the God of the Bible is claiming that there is more. And that life without Him, well, it's, it's hell. But then we get Jonah's first hint of his repentance. Verse 4, Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. On the brink of death he has this thought, I'll come again to that place where God is. I will come back to Jerusalem, back to the God who's in control, back to the God who has told me what to do. I will again gather with your people in your place, in your presence. He repeats, and really he does it again with different words, the whole section in verses 5 to 7. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. To the deepest of the depths. Down, 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 down. It kind of reminds you of chapter 1. Do you remember? Jonah went down to Joppa, away from God. He found a ship and literally in the Hebrew he went down into it. To fall asleep in, down into a deep sleep. The Hebrews kind of clear there's this play going on. Jonah has gone to his own depths. He has sunk because of his rebellion from God. And the God from which he has run away from is punishing him with a punishment fit for the crime like he does. He sees Jonah sink down, down, down. Jonah wants to go down. Jonah wants to leave God. That is what he got. And as his life is ebbing away, his lungs are bursting, gasping to take a breath. At that last moment is his prayer. To God in his holy temple. And it was heard. That's the amazing thing, right? The guy who deserved to be at the bottom of the ocean is now being lifted up. Because of God's love for him. God's purposes for him. God's plans for Jonah. So at the end of the psalm, we meet a kind of new Jonah. A bit of a reformed and repentant Jonah. And with a song of thanksgiving, he says, I will sacrifice to you. Finally, Jonah's caught up with the pagan sailors who threw him off. Who who sacrificed to the God now. We see at the end of this psalm, Jonah is where they were. You know, I think sometimes we are a little like Jonah. Slow to see what God has done. Slow to recognise who he is. It's kind of a little warning here. Don't be. Hear the God of the universe and listen to what he says. So now Jonah is ready to finish his mission. In verse 10, the fish vomits him up. I love it. It's not kind of just like the fish gently let him walk out or ejected him or propelled him or catapulted him. The the word is, the fish vomited, kind of spewed him up. And it makes me wonder, why did they choose that word? Was Jonah really repentant? 
I'm going to have to wait and see. On one sense, it's God's great act of salvation, but in the other, if he wasn't wholehearted, it could be like God saying, I don't want to hear your false promises, but I wonder. In Revelation 3, um, Jesus says of the Laodicean church that he vomited them out of his mouth. The church that was lukewarm. Hardly an endearing word. Maybe God does know Jonah better than we do. But he vomits him onto the ground and kind of sets him straight right next to the sign to Nineveh, as you saw on the video. Not quite, but that's, that's kind of what happens. Now, I think there's two things that we've got to learn here. One is, how deep is too deep? How deep is too far gone for God to rescue you? Because what we see here is that there is no human condition so distressing, so terrifying, so fearful, that God cannot do something about it. There is nothing that God cannot rip us from the depths and bring us back up from. If you have ever thought, oh, I've, I've, I've been too bad, I've done too many things wrong, I've turned my back one too many times. I've, I've, I've done things that just, I can't forgive. If I can't forgive it, how can God forgive it? The repulsive prophet of God who refuses to do what God says and runs the opposite direction in complete defiance, who should be at the bottom of the ocean, is brought back up. God's forgiveness goes to depths unparalleled. Don't believe Satan's lie. It's too hard. This is the God of miracles that he brings us back. I read a while ago about a guy called John Stockton. He's a kind of a canoeer, one of those kayaks that goes in the deep sea one, and he'd been going a fair distance. He was off the coast, about 20 miles off the coast of Hawaii. One of those crazy guys, right? Right out there. Um, when this huge storm came, 20 miles from shore, what do you do? And he kind of heard a voice in his head that said, keep paddling and use your phone. Phones don't work, 20 miles off the coast, you can't get reception out there. But he did. He grabbed his phone and he dialed 911 and the call connected. For two days he floated. Search and rescue teams looked for him but couldn't find him. On their last sweep through, they saw his canoe. They picked him up and saved this guy called John Stockton. That is a miracle. That is so far out, so far gone. But the thing is, when they got back, they, they called the phone company and said, how did this call connect? The phone company said, there's no record of it. We have on our list no record of any calls made from that number. We didn't make the call. That's what they're saying. We didn't connect it. So how did it happen? It had been labelled a miracle. And I've got to say, miracles can happen. Unlikely, yes. Possible, with the God who makes all things, anything is possible. No, far is, no, no distance is too far out, no depth is too deep. But for every miraculous phone call that gets connected, there are a thousand that don't, aren't there? There's a thousand times that people don't get rescued. That they don't come back. For every Jonah rescued from the waves, a hundred believers drown. See, God hadn't finished with Jonah. 
He still had a job to do. Therefore, storm or no storm, God's plans will be fulfilled. But if your work for God is over, whether by drowning, by cancer, by body parts dying, by road accident, by whatever it is, God will call us home. God can save you from particular situations, but He has made no promise that He will make us live forever now. It's good to remember that. His promise to us is that you serve Him. That you put Him first in your life, that you trust in His promise, and then after death He will bring you up. That's that first application. This is the God of miracles who promises to forgive our debts but doesn't promise to always save us from our own stupidity. The second is this. We're kind of halfway through the book now. Through the book of Jonah. It's four chapters, four weeks. Um, and I find Jonah kind of somewhat interesting. It's a, it's a bit of a conundrum. Um, you're kind of like, who is the real Jonah? Is he this guy running from God? Is he this repentant prophet who wants to serve God with his whole life? You're kind of like... Who is this guy? We're going to have to wait and see what he's really like. But the thing that I think is odd, especially considering the way Jonah acts, is that when we meet Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus compares himself to one prophet and one prophet only. If he's going to make a comparison to any prophet of the Bible, he makes a comparison not to Moses, not to Elisha or Elijah or Isaiah, none of the big guns. The kind of the, the high-flying prophets of the Old Testament that did great things. God, uh, Jesus, makes his comparison to Jonah. That has massive significance. One of the principles of understanding the Bible is you always let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. The New Testament writers, when they're quoting the Old Testament and showing what they're about, know what they're talking about. And if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, then he's pointing us to something about Jonah that I think I can miss. Have a look at Matthew 12, 39. It's going to up on the screen. This is Jesus speaking. Uh, he speaks to some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They said to him, Teacher, uh, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. That's kind of the context. And Jesus answered, a wicked, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish... So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Pharisees, they're angry at Jesus. Because why? On the Sabbath, Saturday, he does good. He heals the sick, he raises the dead. And the Pharisees go, how dare you break our laws? Who do you think you are? By what authority do you come and do these things? Give us a sign. We want to know. Give me a sign that you exist. Give me a sign that this unlikely saviour is really who you claim to be. I think we can ask for signs sometimes. Should we? Should we come to Jesus and say, I want to know more. Tell me. Make it clear. Here's what Jesus says. You get one sign and one sign only. The sign of the prophet Jonah, who was as good as dead for three days and rose again. The sign to the world around us. If we want to tell people about this unlikely story, about this unlikely God who is in control of all things, yet still loves the people who walk away from Him, the unlikely Jesus who came and died, 
a criminal's death, but was actually the king of the world who died in our place so that we could know him. If we want to say to the world, this is the one to follow, if we want to sign, Jesus says, it's my resurrection. That's our sign to the world today. It was like a resurrection from the dead for Jonah. He was on the brink of death, of Sheol, in the waiting room, about to experience separation from God. He had three days in death's waiting room and then was brought back up. That's our sign to the world. It's pretty weak, isn't it? Kind of. can sound like a bit of an old wives' tale. As you drive the streets, as you hear people's, people talking about God, they'll say, come and see miraculous healings. Come, come and hear, I've heard God speak and God has spoken to me and He's, and he's told me, I've seen um, amazing things happen. People picked up, thrown against walls, I've seen all sorts of happen. But I tell you, no sign is given to Auckland but the sign of Jonah. The sign of a risen Jonah. The risen Jesus. You meet an atheist in the street. Some of your friends. Oh, there's no God. I've never seen anything. If there was a God, I'd want him to come and to, and to, and to show himself to me. You know, come God, strike me down. Like seen from Forrest Gump when he's on top of the kind of... The, it's not Dan, the other guy. It is Dan, Sailor Dan. Captain Dan, there it is. Sorry? Lieutenant. Lieutenant. Thank you for the correctness. And he's like, it's like this smite me moment. Take me out. Show me you're alive. Be careful when you're on a boat. God says, look to the resurrection of Jesus. As we chat to our friends about who Jesus is and about why we believe, it's the fact that he rose from the dead that is the sign that what he's done has been finished. No sign is given to this adulterous generation, says Jesus, except the sign of Jonah. Jesus died and rose again. That's the sign. Sometimes we kind of feel like, God, I've had a crappy month. Might have been a crappy year. Might have been just a hard time and things haven't been going well and I'm frustrated. But I feel like I want to walk away. Just just show me that you're here. Just convince me. Just, just give me a sign that your plans and purposes for me are good. In His grace, He might. I'm never going to say that God can't do those things. But the word to us this morning, the word from Jesus is this. The sign to us of God's love for us, of His care, of His bringing about His purposes for us, is the defeat of death and the resurrection of Jesus. And when you look at the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, it's not a knockdown argument. There's still questions there. But a guy I know, his name's N.T. Wright, he's, he's this fancy scholar in the UK who's written a book about that thick, it's like three Bibles worth, on the historical evidence for the resurrection. And it's, it's, I've got it on my bookshelf, it's like a hundred bucks, it's an expensive book, right? But it's a fantastic explanation of the probability of the resurrection. Um, you can look him up online and, and see, he's great on this history stuff, he's not brilliant on some other things, but he's great on this history stuff. And you can see there's like a two-minute video clip. I probably should have played it of him explaining how unlikely it is that the resurrection didn't happen. And um, he had a philosophy uh, 
uh, he, he's got a PhD in philosophy, and his supervisor, who's at Oxford, so fancy Oxford PhD supervisor, um, read his book when he'd finished. And he said to him, um, Bishop Wright, because he's a bishop of the Anglican Church, he's like, your book is brilliantly written. I just choose to accept that there's another option that I don't know about than the evidence you put forward for the resurrection of Jesus. Now that's an academically honest answer, but that's what sometimes we do, isn't it? We choose to think there's another option, even though we don't know what it is, than what God is holding out. I want to encourage you today, I'm not going to go through all the evidences for the resurrection, but I'd love to if you want to ask it. If you've got people who you want to invite who have got that question, bring them along to explaining Christianity. Uh, We'll look at some of the historical evidence there about why this church grew so quickly, why they claimed that Jesus rose from the dead, why people who were there actually didn't just knock it down and it didn't die like every other, probably about 10 or 12, they say, religions um, or prophecies that said a saviour would come and die, but they never said he rose again. None of them. Only this one said the saviour rose again. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is our great hope. That's the hope we want to share with Auckland. To see people captivated by this Jesus who's died and risen again for them. That's why we go to whatever lengths we can to show people this sign. It might be the pits of a year. It might be the pits of a life. But for Jesus' sake, we are called to hold out the resurrection. Don't give in. Speak this sign because it's the sign of God that Jesus is who he says he is. And with certainty, if you trust in this Jesus, you'll be spewed out into the age to come. Spewed out into the new heavens and the new earth where you'll be in the dwelling place of God. Back at his temple, so to say. The place where God is when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. When things are put right when the promises of no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, no more suffering will be given, that hope of a relationship with God and one another forever is ours, not because of who we are, but because of the God who goes to the depths of dying on the cross for us, so we might be raised with Him. Why don't we pray that we will boldly share this hope of Jesus with the world around us, that we will serve Him, serve God with His plans and purposes. And as we go to launch as a church, as we go to live back at work this, this week, this, this month, as we kind of head back to you, that we would serve the Jesus who rose again so that people might know that hope. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank You for Jesus. We want to thank You that He has gone to the deepest depths For us, who want naturally nothing to do with you, and brought us back from the dead by dying in our place. His life, his death, his resurrection, show your power that the unlikely would happen, the God of the universe would die. Lord, captivate us by this. We confess that so often we forget who you are. Sometimes we don't kind of run knowingly from you, but we're just oblivious. Show us your love in your Son. Show us how to live lives that are godly, that put you first, that speak of your love in Jesus. 
And keep us faithful to the hope of the gospel. Keep us preaching like Jonah should have. Keep us preaching to ourselves the hope of Jesus. To our neighbours, to this generation, the God who has saved us has come. So Lord, help us to put our faith in Him. Through Your Spirit and by Your Word, keep changing us, Father. Amen.